0: Cracking Christmas has been our theme all through this month of uh, December. If something I say tonight is of interest to you, why not go back onto our website and check out some of the other messages that have been part of this series. Follow the links from the main page. You can also sign up to our weekly podcast in that same place. Mr Bruce Robinson runs a trade shop in Cornwall. His advertisement, however, for Father Christmas to fill seasonal vacancies, was rejected by the Liscard Job Centre on the basis of sex discrimination. This is the letter Mr Robinson wrote in reply. With no disrespect to ladies, Father Christmas has and always will be a man. However, I guarantee to be entirely impartial in the selection of a father stroke mother Christmas. Therefore the person, if female, should have a deep voice Long grey whiskers, a big belly, and no discernible bosom. Should such a female candidate be successful, my only concern is for our children, who will doubtless be terrified. <laughs> Apparently, one local Cornish farmer, knowing the women of Liscard, said there should be many suitable candidates in that <laughs> town. But what's it really all about this tinsel and turkey, these presents and parties, Santa and sentimentality? Is it no more than a series of traditions that we add to or change year by year? Our last carol helps us to remember that it's not at our whim and fancy, but something rooted in history. Something that actually happened. Christmas, not an idea or a thought or an evolving tradition, but a root that finds its root in a certain reliable fact. This is not the fairy world of once upon a time. This is once in Royal David's City, a real event in real time at a real place you can still visit today. What we're talking about is not simply an idea, but something that actually took place with facts for us to grapple with, to struggle with, to wrestle with, facts for us to understand. And so if the first verse reminds us that it's rooted in history, the second verse of that carol gives us some of its meaning. He came down to earth from heaven. Who did? The one who is God and Lord of all. Tonight I want to share very simply three short things from a few sentences in the Bible written by a man named John John was one of the people who first met Jesus and lived with him. And John was so blown away by the way his life had been changed through meeting Jesus that he went on to write about it all in his book. And we have that recorded in our Bibles. And at the beginning of this book, written by John, he spends a whole chapter trying to help us understand, to explain... What was happening? It's those verses that Elizabeth read to us just a few moments ago. And here are a few sentences taken from it. He was, that's Jesus, in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. To become children of god something deep and spiritual because it wasn't children born of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will but born of god the first thing we need to get our heads around is that this is his world he was in the world and the world was made through him imagine There you are, enjoying a pampered existence in a safe and secure home, a life which was constantly like those sleepy moments from dusk right through to dawn. The sounds reaching your ears were always gentle and muffled, and feeding is effortless, just an umbilical cord away. But then it happened, the big squeeze." An earthquake turned inside out, moving lower all the time. You felt like the toothpaste in the tube from hell. The push, the shove from womb to world seemed to take for an eternity and then suddenly pandemonium. All was bright, cold air and someone lifts you by your legs and slaps you on your behind. I hope that was not the only welcome you had when you made your way into the world. Somewhere there was a parent or two, reduced to jelly, their emotions a wreck, an intoxicating cocktail for them of joy, relief, wonder and gratitude. It's the closest you'll ever get to the miracle of life. You may remember that this time last year, uh, Kerry and I were weeks away from the birth of our fourth child, and I shared with you the great dilemma of naming children. Well... On January the 26th, Evan Benjamin arrived safe and well. In fact, like the others, just perfect. And it left us with the same feeling that we've had with all of our children. As we cradled this bundle of beauty, as we watched him grow and his character develop, even in these first 11 months... We could not, and we cannot help but recognize that the miracle in our midst was made through something so much more than us, a creation way beyond our own creativity. Now please don't rush up afterwards for all the birds and the bee stuff. I know how it works, at least after the fourth, I know how it works. I don't mean all that. We did our bit, Carry through nine months certainly did hers but the result was way beyond anything either of us could possibly create. I can't even make those Blue Peter models, all that sticky back plastic and cereal packets leaves me cold. Kerry's a lot better at craft stuff, but even she could not pull off a fully functional working model like this one. Our son, way beyond our own contribution, it's the sheer miracle of life somebody else made that possible there's no way we could do that by ourselves and what splendid packaging they come in eyes ears reflexes motor mechanisms a pre-programmed understanding of food and where to find it lungs so instantly able to breathe vocal cords creating such a sound this creation so mind-blowingly complex, sixty trillion cells, each cell carrying more information than a whole university library could contain, a heart that beats a hundred thousand times a day, eyes that can distinguish up to one million different color. Surfaces. A body that gives birth to a 100 million red blood cells every day, along 60,000 miles of blood vessels. A brain more complex than anything man could conceive of. Kerry and I are clever, but we're not that clever. And there must be someone behind it all. For us, we're reminded, this is his world. This is his world. Maybe you haven't witnessed a birth and you can't quite remember your own. But if you ever have the utter privilege of getting close to a newborn, you cannot help but marvel at the sheer miracle of it all. Maybe from a scientific perspective, this universe can be reduced to a set of complex laws. But how did those laws come into being? They talk of randomness and chance. But how come we live in a world of such order? An order so orderly that out of the chaos we can see the rules before our very eyes. People talk as though we are nothing but a random process. An utter accident, a sheer fluke on a cosmic scale. But I don't think most people buy it. You see, if we are nothing more than the result of a random process... Why do we care so much? Why do I care for you so much? Why does it matter if it's all random when someone gets ill, goes missing, dies, or even is killed? If we're nothing more than freaks of nature of no function or value, just random cells with no purpose or meaning, then why does anybody care? You matter no more than a boil on a baboon, and neither would I. And why, as I suggest... But everything about us here tonight is nothing more than sheer randomness, of no more value than chance. Does something rise up inside you and me and say, no, no, I just know I'm more than that. I'm worth more than that. I am more than randomness. I'm more than an infinitesimal contribution to some great gene pool. I do have meaning. I am of value. My life does matter. And you'd be right. Such feelings a little reminder in each of us from heaven that this is his world and each one of us has been made, created, loved. I'm no freak. I'm formed. I am made. That's why I matter. We are all created. And that's why we care. And John writes in the Bible... If you want to understand Christmas, you've got to understand that this is God's world. You'll never make sense of the rest until you've made sense of this. So Jesus' coming reminds us first and foremost, this is God's world. And then in these verses, the most tragic thing of all. This might be his world, but this is his experience But although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. How unbelievable is that? This God's world, yet this is God's experience. He came and nobody received him. Well, almost nobody. A few shepherds, some eastern mystics, and a rather odd band of disciples. But overwhelmingly, God came to his own and they didn't receive him. His own, the nation of Israel. He'd been preparing them for years, building a relationship with them so that above all they would understand. But they didn't. In fact, they killed him early. They nailed him to a cross. And so in John's day, most people failed to recognize Jesus. And in that sense, nothing much has changed. We have life as a gift, but we ignore the giver. We, the created with no time, for the Creator. Imagine at the end of a concert where everyone so moved by the music rises to their feet in cheer and applause, but then refuses to acknowledge the composer coming on stage to take a bow. God the Giver, the Composer of Life, has indeed come onto the stage, but there's been little applause. The Creator has been left out in the cold. This, his experience, in his world. And we wonder why something is missing. And we wonder why it doesn't feel quite right. For he came to give us what we'd long forgotten, to offer us what we had lost. So let's hear then what he offers. Whilst this is his experience, this is what he offers to all, to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to become a child of God? Well, it means belonging. We're all desperate to belong. That's why the breakup in our relationships are so painful. That's why we want to identify ourselves with the things that we wear and the way that we behave. We want to belong. Even more, we were meant to belong to him, to call him father, to know deep down in our hearts that the God of this world delights in us, and loves us like any good father does for his own children. Secondly, it means benefiting. Benefiting, we benefit from the family inheritance. Now there are loads of benefits of being part of God's family, loads for us to inherit. But maybe above all else, the one that matters to us most is what I'll call eternal, everlasting security. One of the blessings that you might have received, if you're fortunate, from your own family is a certain amount of financial security. God has given us the security of a place in heaven, an eternal pension that will not spoil or fade. Death is still the greatest taboo in our culture. We can't handle it, we don't handle it, but imagine being able to live the whole of this life totally chilled because you know that your move to the next is totally sorted. That's the inheritance, the benefit of the family of God. And then finally, it helps in our behaving too. Whether we like it or not, and more often it's not, we find ourselves increasingly behaving like our mum or our dad. If you haven't noticed, if you have a partner, ask your partner. I promise you, they will have noticed. You're just like your father, you are. Just like your mother. Your grandfather would have done that. There are family <coughs> traits. When you become a child of God, you pick up new family traits. You do new things, things that you didn't do before. You stop doing old things that you no longer choose to do. And maybe as you enter 2007, you want to be different. There are things about the way that you're living now that you want to change, you wish you could change. Becoming his child, joining his family, releases in you a brand new power to live in a new kind of way. So imagine for a moment, changed behaviour, guaranteed benefits, certain belonging, just a tiny glimpse of what it means to belong to the family of God. That's what he came for. A change deep inside. Change that's nothing to do with human decision or a husband's will. But something God does. The Bible says it's a change that's so great, it's as if you were dead and then you're alive. As if you were living in darkness, but then you've come to live in the light. So finally, maybe, and most importantly, how do you get it? Well, there it is. To all who receive him. To those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. You've got to receive him. And you've got to believe in his name. We could probably combine these two ideas with the word trust. A trust not that he exists, or that he can do it, but a trusting of him with our lives. Charles Blondin was a tightrope walker. On the first day of June in 1858, he crossed the Niagara Falls by walking 1,100 feet along a tightrope straight from the American side to the Canadian side. Excuse me. On On arriving at the Canadian side, the crowds, as you might imagine, went wild with adulation. And then he said to the crowd, I want to go back. This time I want to take somebody on my back as I go. The crowd roared with excitement. Do you think I can do it? Yes, came the deafening reply. Let's do it then. I just need one man. Suddenly the crowd fell strangely silent. And no one, no one moved. They believed he could do it. They actually believed he could do it for somebody else, but no one would trust him to do it for them. This Christmas, don't just believe that he could do it for somebody else. Maybe for those people you saw on the baptismal, on the screen, being baptized. Why not trust him this Christmas to do it for you, to receive him into your heart? that he might carry you from where you are now into that place of the family of God. His experience is this, although it's his world, his experience is that many have left him out in the cold. And I don't know if you've heard the story of Jesse Owens, the black athlete from Atlanta, Jesse Owens was made famous during the Berlin Olympics in 1936 when he humbled all of Hitler's athletes winning gold after gold after gold in the sprints and the long jump. Maybe you've seen the film of Hitler (coughs) storming out of the stadium rather than shake the hand of a black man who had beaten his Aryan athletes. After the Olympics, Jesse Owens returned home to Atlanta and a huge civic dinner was put on on his behalf. After all, Owens had put Atlanta on the map. At the dinner, Owens, of course, was the guest of honour. He was presented with his award. He was applauded and cheered. But then, he was sent out of the room for the civic leaders of Atlanta did not want to be seen breaking social convention and eat their dinner with a black man. Isn't it ironic? The guest of honour, the one who's responsible For the whole celebration he gets sent away there's no one here i'm sure who isn't outraged by that kind of behavior but we do it all the time and not just at christmas as we go through our lives it's so easy to leave outside the guest of honor the very one who's responsible for it all the creator the giver of life we sent him away The tragedy of Christmas is that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But the truth of Christmas is that everyone who's received him, to all who've believed and put their trust in him, he gives them the right to become his children, children of God.